Hey everyone, welcome back to the Health Focus Podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing coach John Connor. John is one of the directors and founders of the Irish Strength Institute. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about all things strength training, understanding the fundamentals of strength and conditioning, and understanding some attributes of your athlete. Also, John will be talking about weight cutting for uh, combat sports, and he'll be talking about a little bit about his PhD. So this is an absolutely great episode for all you personal trainers out there, and especially strength coaches. So on that note, enjoy the podcast. Cheers, guys. So, uh, John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. So for any of the listeners that um, may have not heard of you, how rude of them, uh, give us a bit of a, an introduction about yourself and um, what you do exactly. Okay, so I'm in the industry just coming up on 20 years now. So I would have started in uh, a big uh, chain gym called Westwood. So that's where I would have met uh, my co-founder of the Irish Strength Institute, okay. Owen Lacey. So I knew Owen from back then. And I started working in the teen gym there and uh, progressed up to the the main gym and the guy who was probably the head personal trainer at the time was big into Paul Check, so I seen he was probably like I don't know how you define success but he was the busiest um, seemed to be getting the best results of all the trainers there so he was a uh, big into Paul Check, so I went down the Paul Check route. So this would have been in the early noughties, and through Paul Check, then so I would have done what was that Paul Check level one, level two, golf biomechanic, his HLC course one and two, which is probably like my early exposures to nutrition, and then through the Paul Check courses, I got into uh, he talked a lot in his program design course about Charles Polican, so then. I started doing a lot more of the Charles Pollock and stuff and then in the summer of 2004 I would have gone over and done my first internship with Charles and it was a complete eye opener for me because the Paul Check model was more uh, balance based, uh, you know, in what a, sense? A, a lot more, uh, doing a lot more stuff on Swiss balls, doing unstable training, so you, you were you were trying to make the athlete as unstable as possible and then trying to load them um, and then when I went to Charles it was it was just like very as such basic it was just like squat bench lift heavy get stronger and when I went to see Charles like it was just all athletes he was training so I was like okay this is this is what I want to do so then uh, we adopted his his model of training and probably would have started doing way more of that then when I came back then. So then myself and Owen, in November 2004, we were the first people to bring Charles to Europe to teach a course. And then the following summer, 2005, I spent the entire summer over there interning with Charles and probably my main kind of mentor while I was there was Andre Benoit. And, you know, just learning the system in a lot more depth. I think it, there's a big difference between seeing like a lot of interns will do a week, but I was there for three months, and it's very different seeing a program for a week to and see it develop. To, to see him for tr- to yeah, yeah, for three yeah, months, yeah, yeah. So that was planned to see him for three months, and then uh, Charles was kind of launching his certification program around that time, and then myself and Owen were kind of always hosting him when he came to Ireland, especially, and then we were looking at venues for, around Europe. 
So as a result, myself and Owen were at, at loads of his early stuff and Charles being Charles. What did that look like? It was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> but Charles being Charles, he'd be just like, okay, uh, John, you teach the structural balance today. Owen, you teach this. Da, da. And we uh, be, became instructors, I, I don't know, by just being in the right place. And so then uh, in 2007, uh, Andre had left um, and came back in 2007 as a head instructor. So myself, Andre and Owen kind of took um, all of the stuff we'd been doing, myself and Owen over the three, four years with Charles, and then Andre over his, at that time, 25 year over 25 years with Charles, and we kind of put a bit more of a structure in place for the level one, two, three, and four. Like we basically, the three of us together, uh, structured it all together and built it up. And it was like, a, I'd say come 2009, 2010, was probably the, one of the most successful strength and conditioning certifications in the world. Um, and then a kind of myself and Owen had left, and then Andre left as well. Um, and around that time, I uh, kind of went back into more formal education. I hadn't done an undergraduate, but I qualified for a master's program through industry experience. So I did a, a master's in uh, exercise and nutrition sciences. Um, and now I've progressed on to doing a PhD from there. Gotcha. A bit all over the place there though. Okay. <laughs> and when, when you first interned with Charles, I think you said around 2004, and yeah. you, you first uh, went in and you saw him working with athletes, and you know, you're, you're working in a gym in Westward, and you're, you're training teenagers or just whoever else comes in. Yeah. So when you were adopting some of his uh, methods, how well did it translate to the clients you were seeing in commercial gyms? And were you able to go home and start applying that information with the general population clients? And if so, we seen results. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing you take away is is regardless of if they're an elite athlete mm. or they're part of the general population, the foundation program is very similar. So we for the level one, level two at the time was we had an upper body structural balance test and a lower body structural balance test and pretty much everybody, regardless of gender, background, age, experience, would fail those tests as such. So you're always starting with the same basic program design for people. So it's like for your lower body, you're breaking, like you're moving people away from bilateral exercises and you're doing unilateral exercises like split squats, step ups, you know, your unilateral leg curls, you're improving lower back strength and uh, working on core strength. Uh, then with the upper body, people always neglect the back, the smaller muscles, the rotator cuff. So everyone, regardless of whether they were uh, an elite athlete or general population, so the principles are still the same. Now, yeah. an elite athlete would progress through the phases faster, and like when they're doing split squats, they're they're using more weight, but the principles are exactly the same that the person is using. And like back then, that was 2004, and even some of <clears throat> Charles' methods go beyond that from maybe the early 90s into the late 80s. So, like you look at these, some of the like structural balance, GPP phases, uh, accumulation, intensification, block style, periodization, and now it's almost like there's so many PICP coaches out there. And was it controversial any of his methods back then, like the block styles, the structural balance? How how was it when you were uh, assisting on his courses? Was it um, well regarded? Or how was it like? Well, did you for ever a, question his techniques. Yeah, for for a lot of people, like so, from when I made the transition from kind of like the, the Paul Czech school to the 
Charles Poliquin School, you know, it was, or the Paul Czech cult to the Charles Poliquin <laughs> cult. <laughs> it was, um, uh, it, it, it was shocking then because the, the industry now from my exposure to the industry was very balance orientated and a lot of the say uh, the idea conference we went to and uh, the fit pro and stuff like that was very balance orientated like the yeah. kind of Paul check thing but then you see the, the shift um, and I think strength training was really starting to make a, a comeback then where the, like people love new trends and you see this all the time where it's like something new will come out like uh, you know at the time it was the, the swiss ball and then there was the kettlebell oh, then yeah, there TRX. was trx and you know there was a, a, all the latest tools and every tool has stuff it's it, it's excellent for but it's specific like so when people come in and like trx is basically uh simplified gymnastics but they try and do it for the lower body as well and it, it's not as effective for a lower the lower body and then it was like, yeah, the kettlebell has like a few exercises that it's incredible for, but not everything. And then like the kettlebell is the prehistoric dumbbell, but it still had some exercises. So like that trend like was was coming back in. So when I was coming through with Charles, like, and it was like the biggest thing was, it was like people were getting better results using his methods for what people are showing up for. So like your general population, what are they coming in for? They're like, I want to look better naked. And I don't want to get injured doing it. And his methods were, you know, for getting people stronger, for getting them leaner, were way more effective than what I had been using to that point. And it was the same with the instructors that were coming from, like, all over the world to do our courses. They were just saying, well, you know, like I had previously, like, the most successful trainer in my gym was a Czech uh, trainer. Then the most successful trainers now in these people's gyms were a Polican certified trainer. And they were like, well... He's getting the best results. I want to get good results. I'm going to do these courses. And it's like the principles he's using are like, I think when people look at different methods of training, different people, they always try and find what's different, not what's the same. So a lot of the successful methods all have the same sort of thing. The most basic thing is like the overload principle. Then there's, as you said, like going through phases of accumulation and intensification. So Everyone, if we just rewind there for some of the listeners will be aware of, it, of the overload principle because. It's kind of gone through with um, the PICP courses, but for people that aren't aware, can you just kind of give some like definitions it, about that? In its basic form, it's like when you walk into the gym one day, the next day you come back to that program, you need to do it heavier. Now, you can achieve that through just putting more weight on the bar. You might do more sets. Uh, your average set weight might be heavier. So there's, it's just once over time, because there's stress, it's there's getting heavier. Yeah, the ha yeah, as you said, there's adaptation to it. So it's, it's just a case of, right, and, and that's the most basic thing is like, and you have to track what you do. So that was like one of the biggest things like, as well, like everything was tracked. It was like, right, you walk in day one, it's like, okay, you figure out the, the, what your work set weight is. And the next day, so like Charles always had a software and it would add 2% automatically to it. So and you know you're lifting that day. So you're lifting, so compared to the last day, you know, right, this is what you have to lift today. And then the next workout would add 2% again. And it, it would just keep going like that. And it was like... How did that work? Um, yeah, but like, and you, you see it. And this is why it was really interesting to do the three months is because you see these principles take, you know, form over the three months rather than it's just like a week because um, in, in the summer of 2004 when I was there for a week like you're you're getting exposure to a lot of uh, individual program days but you're not seeing it progress through it 
you know so over the course of summer so like when i was there there was like there was uh several nhl guys there there was several nfl there was was there maybe it was 2004 there was a couple of olympic athletes so you like you're seeing the, the slight variations but the overall principles are still the same like and there's some guys coming in doing their structural balance and then every program regardless of how high-end it is still has you know seeds of that there so they're still working on the rotator cuff they're still working on their mid-back lower traps mm. you know they're working on their lower uh, their lower back they're working on their hamstrings you know so they're working on all these small muscle groups as well as doing all the real fancy stuff like they, they don't like like the, the weight some of these guys were lifting was just mind-blowing at the time like so yeah. it was uh, but you were seeing that progress from you know you're seeing guys squatting like 200 kilos but then you know they're they're finishing their program with split squats or step ups to make sure that you know they're not getting injured and and i think that was it like another key pro uh, principle is like every sport it's like yes it's important to get super strong but it's the person that can train the most that will long term be the most successful so if you're breaking your athletes trying to achieve whatever type of numbers it's a waste of time you have to you know keep them fit that's your number one goal as a strength coach is just keep them fit and then you know everything else is a bonus beyond that yeah because you're really only supplementing their sport and, well. uh, yeah and i have to say that was uh, probably something i made a mistake at at the start so in 2009 uh we would have started training mma guys and when we started training them like our focus was way more on strength and conditioning than it needed to be so we were starting too to put emphasis too much of an emphasis so it was kind of like oh well the better athlete they are the better they're going to perform their sport like the stronger they are and that is not necessarily true in uh, a sport with a high uh, skill component so every sport can be broken into four major components so you have your your physical component your mental component your tactical component and your technical component. So depending on the sport, like so the 100 meter sprint, the tactical component, there's no tactical component, it's just gun goes, go for it, right? There's a technical component for your, your like sprint mechanics, but compared to a sport like MMA, the technical component is way lower, right? And then yeah. the, the psychological component, you know, because it's you know you have such a small window of uh, performance that you need to be on your game, but it's like the physical component and something like that is much greater. So, but when it comes to MMA, there's so many different facets that you have to work on. And at the time, the guys we had coming through had started the sport quite late in in a lot of instances, like late teens, early twenties. So well, it wasn't big in Ireland at that. It wasn't. It was it was <laughs> it was non-existent yeah. in Ireland at the time. So. There was a lot of learning going on and now we probably over the years probably swung too far the other way where we did too little strength and conditioning and i think for the last few years we've kind of found that right balance and then it's trying to find that balance within the individual and then within the different times of year because within with mma there's no off season there's no there's no season you get a such. call <laughs> a week from the fight and then exactly it's yeah time. so and um and then I'd be involved a lot with boxers as well. So in 2011, I started working with Carl Frampton and Shane McGuigan. And then I would have worked with a lot more boxers over the years. And <clears throat> when it comes to boxing then, because it's, 
you know, compared to MMA, it's a much narrower skill set. So you can spend more time on strength and conditioning than if you just took those two sports of boxing versus MMA. Boxing, you can spend way more time on your strength and conditioning because by the time you get to a professional boxer, a lot of these guys have come through the amateur ranks and they, they literally could be boxing 15 years. So the, the, the gains are very small in boxing, but you could make lots of gains in your strength and conditioning and fitness as well. So it's, it's kind of trying to, to balance uh, them off in that sense. Gotcha. So kind of rewinding a little bit to, uh, you know, having mentors in the industry and uh, learning all these different techniques and style of periodization and whatnot. You, obviously, you have to refine your own system, but like when people hear you're on the podcast, you know, you're, you're well known in the industry. You, people's, yeah. uh, people's ears will perk up and want to listen, but like, unfortunately, you don't present as much as you probably should because um, you do know a shit ton of information and, and you don't present enough about it. So uh, sometimes, you know, we have to squeeze it out of you. Okay. So uh, <laughs> what, um, what, what is the refined kind of John Connor approach to strength training? What are some of the, the biggest principles or biggest approaches you've learned from, whether it's Charles, Paul Cech, Andre, or other mentors, and you've kind of refined it into your own system? What would you recommend, you know, for other coaches to listen to uh, read and learn about or okay well as i said is the the the, the, the overload principle like i learned that yeah. very first course i ever did day one on strength and conditioning with like the ntc okay. in 2000 and um, the very first day shane something was the the instructor's name but like the very first day like he talked about that right so like that carries over to everything right um after that, it's like, I, I think the biggest thing is like, is you need an assessment to, to, uh, for everybody that comes through the door, but it's to keep it as simplified as possible. Like okay. the, the assessment we have here is like, you get someone to squat, see what it looks like. You get someone to do a split squat, see what it looks like. Get them to do a press, see what it looks like. Uh, a pull, see what it looks like. And uh, you might have, depending if they come in with maybe injuries or something like that, a core test. And you go from there, right? So you don't yeah. need to make it super complicated, two, three hours long. Like when I, when I was doing the, the, the Paul Check stuff, like the assessment could take up to two and a half hours, three so hours. It's and it's like, okay, yes, you're getting a lot of information, but- Optimal versus practical. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, and uh, Andre Benoit was like, there was all, he had said, cause he had gone through uh, Charles' system went off and did Char uh, Paul checks and came back to Charles's and he was like saying, it, you always have to remember is they just have to be good enough to do the task. If you're trying to make them this perfect balanced individual, then you could waste months. He was like, with sportsmen, it's like, you're trying to make them more effective at the sport, right? Is them having a perfect ratio between, you know, internal rotation on their left and right hip like really gonna you know bring them to the ultimate aspect of the sport or do you just need to make it balanced enough so that they can perform the exercises you need them to perform to improve their physical abilities to make them do their sport better so it's kind of like trying to find that like fast track through that um so from there as, as i said it's like the overload principle have an assessment but don't make it too complicated and the same goes for uh, like your body fat assessments, your nutritional assessments um, for the level of people you deal with because you need, you need to be able to, uh, to gradiate stuff and you need to be able to have levels to go through stuff. So like when most people come into you, 
unless they have an underlying health condition that they're coming to you for, fixing someone's basic nutrition is going to fix so many what their health problems are. Getting them to sleep better is going to finish, uh, fix a lot of those things as well. Just getting them moving, drinking more water. So it's like, yes, you might have a, a list of stuff to get through, but it's like, take care of the big rocks first and the other stuff will take care of itself. And then if it doesn't take care of itself, then you start looking at more complicated matters. People try and make things super complicated from the start yeah. and you lose people. Like some people love that. You might fill some people with making it like too complicated. Uh, complicated. But what you're trying to do is like you need buy-in. So if, if you're talking like day one about right, what I need you to do is right, we need to figure out what days you're low training days so we can carb load on yeah. other days because of like, you know, high training demand, low training demand, blah, blah, blah. It's not about that. It's like, right, does this person know the difference between like, you know, do they actually know the difference between a carb and a protein? You know, and a lot of people are, you know, their nutritional knowledge is, is, is zero. So it's like, you know, meet them at their level and then build it up. And then when you start running into problems later on, well, they're already doing most of your stuff, then you start making it more complicated. But it's and when like, clients see results, you build compliance as well. Exactly. Like, and, and sometimes it's like, you know, you don't need to use your black belt moves when a white belt move will do. So yeah. it's like, just use the level they need and, and build from there. Like, as you said, it's like you're talking about different models of periodization. For a lot of people, like, now again, it's, it's very different for me because I deal with a lot of fighters. So as I said, there's no real season uh, yeah. involved with those guys and then general population. So there's no season with any of them. So it's always like, always build a structural balance phase. Now, people will call that general preparation, anatomical adaption, prehab, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's but, but the same principles go across it where it's like... Structural balance is essentially you're just kind of fixing areas of priority. Yeah, of and understanding. the thing is, is that regardless of what the person's goal is, whether it's high performance, fat loss, injury rehabilitation, you can still achieve all of those things with a structural balance program. Mm. Like a lot of the athletes I've dealt with over the years... Uh, you'd be shocked at how weak they are when they come in initially. So, like, for them to do a split squat and a step up is, is like, massive for them just to be doing that, to be working on lower back muscles that they've never worked on, to be, you know, working on their hamstrings is incredible. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. Like, so um, some people m might know already, but, you know, you've got quite a, a history training athletes, boxers, MMA fighters, but when did you kind of start getting involved training with MMA fighters and... So, as I, uh, I think I said it earlier, so uh, early 2009. Nine, okay. So, uh, and that was with SBG? Or? With SBG. So, in 2008, I think it was November 2008, Tom Egan was the first Irish guy to fight in the UFC in uh, the point at the time. And at the time, John Kavanaugh would have done everything for that team. He would have been their nutritionist, their weight cut expert, their Crazy. strength and conditioning coach, their technical coach. So, he would have done everything. And after that, after his exposure to that show, he was like, right, I can't do everything here. I need to bring in people to take care of stuff. So he met with Owen in early 2009, and then we came on board looking after the nutrition and the strength and conditioning. Now, uh, is it true that I think Cole introduced them, was it? Yeah, so uh, our first gym, uh, myself and Owen's first gym, was down in Richmond Road, and Cole was in... Uh, an MMA club which was like a couple of doors down and Cottle is like one of those guys that he's really on the ball when it comes to you know like he's 
he's a super smart guy and he comes from a science background so he's trained in forensic sciences so he's always looking for like all these little different things he, very analytical he, very analytical so he's seen like we used to do in the front of our gym we would have done strongman training or modified strongman training whatever you want to call yeah. it and so he's seen us do this so he got a group of lads uh, from that club at the time to do it and he was really impressed with like chatting to, to chatting to us seeing like their fitness improve really fast from doing this type of training so then when he moved to SBG uh, I think he had a conversation with John Cavanagh saying listen I was working with these guys over here you should have a conversation with them so he came over met, uh, John came over met with Owen and then we started training the team so that original team uh, like yeah, there was, was it? it was like Ash Daly, Paddy Houlihan, Conor McGregor, uh, Chris Fields, Cottle Pendred. I think uh, Roddy was there. Uh, I'm not sure at the very start, but Artem was like within a year or two years. He was there. Um, like what pretty much that whole things. yeah, pretty much <laughs> that whole Irish invasion yeah. was that initial team. Um, and as I said, like so, we would have started off, and again the same principles was right these guys were massively imbalanced and like bar one or two were very weak yeah, so, so it's what like, was it like when you took them into the gym because like i've been to conferences oh, before an empty and bar would break them yeah but you know you see some uh, some strength coaches speak about their athletes and you, they talk about them as being these superior athletes but then like their, their sport might not necessarily tra transfer to a gym floor when you're lifting a, a barbell for a bench press or a squat or a deadlift so like you talked about you know attributes of an athlete being technical, mental, physical, and um, what was the last well, one? Well, so uh, what was it? Technical, physical, psychological, and tactical. Tactical. Yeah. yeah. So. So where did you start it, with them? Yeah. So with, with them again, it was like so a big part of what we would have done at the time was right. In in fighting, you never want the person to get tired. Okay. So yeah. if you're fit, you always stand a chance. So. A lot of what we did initially was uh, a lot of the modified strongman stuff and it would have been a lot of sled work, a lot of prowler work, right? Because with that, you can, uh, you can overload them, work them really hard and it, the level of injury is very low, right? Um, people would call it eccentricless training. So exactly, yeah. But it's even taxing e or is that one of the reasons? Uh, it, not that it's less taxing, it's that the technique... So say, for instance, if you were doing farmer's walks. Yeah. The, the amount of people that will hurt themselves just lifting them off the ground yeah. or a super yoke, the same thing. You fuck up an athlete, that's not good. Yeah, exactly. So, and a lot of these guys, so um, guys from a, an MMA background, especially if they have a jiu-jitsu base, and there's a thing in jiu-jitsu called an upside down guard, which basically means they lie yeah. and they put their feet by their head, right? So their head is on the ground as they're lying on the ground and they bring their feet up here and they, they, they play this thing called an upside down guard. So anyone who plays that has terrible neck issues, terrible lower back issues. So if you start loading that person's spine, you're going to destroy it, right? Yeah. So from that early team, like uh, Paddy Houlihan used to play that upside down guard all the time. And this is like, you, you're learning this stuff all the time. So like for him, it, it was like, we realized very quickly you're, you're not doing squats and deadlifts <laughs> with him. But, but does a heavy squat correlate with to a good <clears throat> fighter? No, but like it's like we can overload the muscles we need to overload with, as I said, is like lots of sled drags, uh, lots of sled work, um, and uh, you like your split squats, your step up. So his spine is staying safe throughout that. Um, 
but early on it was like yes these guys are um weren't great in the gym but again it's the, you have to realize as well as well what type of body is suited to the gym what type of body is suited to, to the sport yeah, so, so a lot of sports like field-based sports people who tend to have a much longer uh, leg length to their height are way more successful uh, field sports okay, okay. <clears throat> what's that really bad for squatting right yeah back squatting especially front squatting it's actually really good for but back squatting it's terrible for the most successful fighters, and this goes for boxing and MMA, have, you know, the uh, Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, which is like the yeah. perfect dimensions, right? The Vitruvian Man be a terrible fighter, right? Your reach has to be greater than your height, right? So Conor McGregor's five foot nine, so, and his reach is of someone who is six foot two, right? Mm. So he's, what's that, 69 inches and a 74 inch reach. I think it's roughly around that, like, I'm like a, might be, but it, Armstrong. It, yeah, but his his reach is incredible, right? Yeah. But what are long arms terrible for in the gym? Benching. Benching, right? So now, depending on the attachment of the lat, some people with long arms can have great chin up strength, others can mm. have terrible, right? But it doesn't matter because the mechanics are what matter for his sport, right? And so, Artem, <laughs> Artem <laughs> Bidi, with I always, I, yeah, I always like this fella. It's terrible, like, and he's he's. Like, for Artem as well, as like he has certain genetic things massively in his favour, right? But one of the things working against him is he has a shorter reach than his height, right? Yeah. So he is an incredible strong bencher, and he has incredible power as a result of his strength. But it's really... So his distance management is much harder. So then... Um, Carl Frampton would be similar to... Um, Artem frame wise right yeah. I think his, his height and his reach are the same but he's just so technically good right so he makes up for that physical thing with his technical capacity yeah and then like the, the other things are, are amazing as well so you have to take these things into consideration as well um, when you're looking at it and then another thing for an athlete is is that it's good to be strong it's better to be fast okay so yes, strength training is important, but you have to be able to transfer that strength to speed. In sport, it's not about who can produce the most force, it's about who can produce the most force in most cases in less than 200 milliseconds. So it's a case of you need to be strong, yes, but you need to be able to be, be quick, right? That's way more important. So how do you train that? So now, uh, the guy Dietmar Schmiedsblacher is a German guy and he was like saying uh, strength is the mother of all qualities right yeah. so if you get stronger pretty much everything will improve so, right so when someone walks in the door as I said keep it simple get them stronger yeah and, and Bit, also using structural balance fix their problems and then you start moving them into your squats your stuff and then the, the simplest thing to get someone strong or faster is and it's very underrated is sprinting the simplest thing people will have um you know all these devices in the world which are important and have their place but if you want to get someone faster get them strong in the gym and transfer it to that and use sprints now if they're a boxer hip pads right or it's weight dependent as well you don't probably want to want to have a heavyweight fighter 
doing sprints as well or maybe you do oh yeah you do okay. so it's 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 like you're still developing and this is the thing you're always it's you're looking at the quality that you're training and um when people do sprints they don't do sprints they do energy system training so they're all about like sprint come back go again no uh Sorry, training speed is about quality okay, okay? and that's what you are oh, and they, now in fairness that's what a lot of these devices are brilliant for so there's like different devices you can put on the barbell or a, your force platforms and they can measure your drop off so as soon as there's a drop off in speed then you stop okay um, and you know so the, the, like for for these guys now so what's really good say for fighters is as a strength coach you don't really need to worry about training their speed because they're going to be doing that with their sport you yeah. need to be worrying about um, their strength and keeping them injury free. That's your major concerns. And as I said, fitness is, is almost, I, in some cases, you'd almost put that more important. But Would you uh, not consider that the, the easiest attribute to train <coughs> or acquire over power and strength? Or would you disagree with that statement? That power is easier to no, obtain. No, no, fitness. Oh, yes, uh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So fitness... Fitness can be gained really quickly and of the, unless there's an underlying cause, but like, you know, of any of the, like of, of those three, qualities. if you're going to, of those three qualities, power, strength, fitness, fitness, you can train the quickest and the easiest, strength be next, power be the hardest. The hardest actually. Yeah. So I've heard, um, I think it was Charles talk about, you know, when you see all these people who plyometrics, whether it's scissor jumps, clapping, push-ups and all these things, and it, people ask, how do I make my athlete faster? And he, I think he, he said it had a statement like, to move something heavy, you need to be explosive. So you can't move something heavy slow. Yeah, you know, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. would you agree to make someone faster, you need to make them stronger? Yeah, so you would, all, as I said, it's like strength is the mother of all qualities. So make them, make them strong. Because it was like, there's so, certain people that will have, so uh, Arav O'Meal would have been another guy that I would have learned off. And he would have had um, certain percentages of your body weight that you needed to do in exercises yeah. before you were allowed to do plyometric stuff. Because if you couldn't do these things, he was like, too you're weak. too weak. Yeah. So like, I think he was like, uh, now he was dealing with basketball players, so it was kind of like one and a half times body weight squat, um, one and a quarter times bench. Um, and then, and he was like, right, once you've achieved those, now you can do, uh, because it's not even about producing the power, it's controlling the eccentric load. So if you're not strong enough, it's more, it's not the, the push part that will hurt you, it's the landing part. Okay. So if you're doing lots of jumps, um, it, it's the, the landing that could, is, is what is causing more damage. And if you haven't got the strength to control that, then you start getting injured. And, and you can even graduate jumps. So like to jump onto something has the lowest uh, eccentric load, all right? Then to jump uh, along is lower, yeah. is higher, but still lower, yeah. And then say hurdle jumps is to jump over. So that's a, the a next step up. And then depth jumps will be the last one. So okay. you're, you're, you've greater load coming down before you, uh, um, it would be, it'd be the end goal to get to gotcha. for that person because it's the highest eccentric load. Gotcha. And when we talk about the concentric <clears throat> contraction, if you have any of your fighters that say squat, press, or pull, uh, is does the speed of concentric movement correlate with 
yeah, so, strength or like do you want it moving let's say one second yeah so the, so you've got what's uh, fast stretch sorting cycle and slow stretch sorting cycle so say for instance a sprint would be a fast stretch sorting yes. cycle where a depth jump would be a slow one so it's yes. kind of figuring out which one suits them better because okay. a lot of times um now in general depending on the sport it's like just get them moving fast you're fine right now as you get to higher level of athletes it, it does become way more important so it's like what's the sport they're trying to do so yeah. with fighters depth jumps mightn't be the best thing because it's you need them to be quicker so like straight line sprinting um would be a lot better but say for instance if you have someone who like yes it, it might be like as they said it might be more turns and stuff like that so like in basketball where you know they have to they have to plant a turn go the other way um it, it, it's a different movement they do a lot more jumping so jumping would or depth jumps would be a lot more applicable to that than a, a, a boxer who's trying to move quick in out where he's not taking forever to do anything. So there is a time and a place for the type of plyometric. But I think it, it's definitely further down the line in your uh, level of concern yeah, with so people. If we talk about kind of uh, implements like dumbbells, barbells and stuff like that, uh, <clears throat> do, does, let's say, you know when you talk, people talk about slow strength? Or slow okay, yeah, yeah, when yeah. When you're moving a weight that your intention is to move it as fast as possible. Yeah. But concentrically, it's moving slow. Maybe it's because we're at an 85% or above. Yeah. Do you think you're potentially making an athlete slower? I, I, think if, if, I think if that's all you do, yes. Yeah. Okay. But I think if you mix that type of work, so say for instance, we'll, we'll just take a boxer for argument's yeah. sake. Now, if you're throwing a punch with your hand only, you're a crap boxer. But just for the, the yeah, example yeah, yeah. we're using, it's like, if all you do is bench and you're never hitting pads, then you will make the person. Now, if you take them day one beginner and you increase their strength on the bench while they're also hitting pads, they're going to be hitting the pads harder, okay? But if you kind of, as I said, like we made this mistake where it was like we're doing strength, strength, strength and taking the technical work out, like the pad work out, you're going to make that person slower, okay? Yeah. But if, so the thing is to try and find that balance between doing your bench, hitting the pads, so if you do it correctly, now, regardless, your intention should always be to move the bar fast on the bench press. Yeah, always. Always, okay? But you're not trying to replicate the speeds of a punch, okay? It's like use the right tool at the right time. So the bench is your heavy work, hitting the pad is your speed work. But you still want to be uh, lifting the bar with it as quick as possible. Even though it might look quick, the intention is quickness, but you have to marry the two of them together to doing your heavy bench work with your hitting the pads. Gotcha. Yeah. Perfect. So um, just moving on a little bit about some of your experiences with the fighters, is there any sort of uh, noteworthy or you know experiences that you've had that um, as a strength coach you're, you're pretty proud of certain athletes or you know experiences you've had down the line because you've been at UFC events, Cage Warriors events, like all these events over the years. You've trained so many fighters, but uh, just fill us in on a couple of maybe athletes you trained and some of the experiences you had. Even going to some of the events because I'm sure people listening, uh, strength coaches in particular, want to hear some of the stories. Yeah, um, I, from a personal point of view, I think. Um like as a strength coach, um, like I got to carry Carl Frampton's belts to the ring a couple of times. Like that's incredible. Like when you look back at experiences like that, um, 
like that was amazing to be able to do that and that's like i always remember this like because I've, I've, I've been in crowds before but there's definitely a thing of like sound can be directed at you and i always remember like walking out with him mm. in front like he's in front and you're holding the belts but the the noise is just coming towards you and it's 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 amazing like that was uh I remember the exact fight. I think it was Kiko Martinez. He was fighting the, um, and that, it was in the Odyssey Arena. But it was like a sold out Odyssey Arena, and like like fans up there, they love boxing, um, and that was probably like I'd say uh, the highlight of like uh, working with him there. And then I'd say probably the best evening. And it's probably a lot of guys was the uh, UFC. In Dublin, tw July 2014. Um, so on the card, like you had, uh, I remember that one, yeah. Uh, Paddy Houlihan, and and uh, so Paddy Houlihan won the very first. So normally at a UFC, like I've been at a lot of UFCs, and and, and I've been an MMA fan. So a lot of times when I go to these things, if if uh, if I'm not in the corner or anything like that, I would literally go and watch every single fight. So normally the arena is empty and like it, you know there might be a couple of hundred people there like the, the the fighters friends and family are probably the only ones there um and a few fucking lunatics that like myself who just liked all the fights but like so paddy when he went out i'd say the tree arena uh holds about nine thousand people and i said it was already eight thousand people in it for the very first fight and the thing about it was it was like i was really proud of that because it was a real combination of um everything we do in the isi and it was like like paddy was basically told to retire from fighting because his back was so bad uh, and this is what i was talking about earlier with like uh, but how many fighters did you help in that, in that event so we had uh paddy was on cottle was on uh connor was on and and that was connor's first fight back from his acl injury yeah and and at any time with my involvement with Connor, that was probably the most involvement I'd ever had in a very sustained, you know, uh, prolonged period was like building him up. So he would have done his surgery and initial rehab in uh, in America, in Los Angeles. And then he came back to here. But it was again, it was like all these principles we're talking about. So we started with the structural balance, uh, you know, so you're, you're trying to correct imbalances between his left leg, his right leg. Um, you know, you're building up his hamstring strength, which is super important for knee health, regardless of your sport. Uh, we're Quite building up, ratio. but it, it, like, and if you look at like his physique in uh, his fight against Holloway, where he hurt himself, and even that was like, in some ways, you're looking at it going, like he tore his ACL in the fight and was able to fight on. So the big thing is, if your hamstrings are strong enough, it can compensate for a lack of an ACL. So. The work we had done, even though our role got bigger after his injury, it was we we had still done enough that he was able to finish that fight and win it against Max Holloway, who like would yeah. turn into one of the best fighters there ever was. Um, yeah, so like that night, I'd say was probably you know one of the biggest moments, and like for Cottle as well, as because Cottle had introduced us to the whole situation, and he had like the fight probably should have been stopped. Great fight. He, yeah. So his fight definitely should have been stopped. And if it wasn't for Mark Goddard, I'd say it would have been. <coughs> yeah, so that definitely should have been stopped. And he battled back from that, won the fight, won uh, performance of the night. 
um, you know, like that was that was just incredible. And then uh, that was July uh, twenty fourteen, and then J January twenty fifteen, Paddy Cahill and Connor were fighting on the Boston card, and that was another like uh, amazing night as well. Like so, um, like they they're just incredible being involved with that, and then. Um, as a coach, it must be you know pretty cool helping kind of facilitate that. Yeah, as well. uh, but as well as that, like in in you realize in sports like that, like yes, you can have a big part of it, but your role is minimal. it's minimal as well. Like yeah. you, you have to realize it's like you know Paddy Hulan having a hundred kilo bench is going to make no difference to his ability to choke someone unconscious. Like so, it's like focusing on the things that will help, and it's like as I said, there's so many factors involved. Uh, in the outcome that it's like taking a step back and realizing right what can I impact and not trying to be too cocky about it and realizing like you, you know yes you can have a positive it's more it's more probably trying to not have a negative not effect yeah, yeah. than you know because um, you can it, it, like you can have three four five percent impact on positive impact on performance but do you do things wrong you can but can be sensitive you can oh your hamstrings weak <clears throat> yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and how you sell stuff, yeah. and yeah, yeah, so that can be important as well. Perfect. So, just um, uh, could you tell the listeners about your uh, your PhD as well, because you're so involved with um, combat sports and uh, MMA and boxing. But um, give mm -hmm. a bit more information about what you're studying right now and what you're doing. So, um, so as I said, when we first started uh, working with the SPG fighters, so as I said, it's over ten years, and we would have done all their nutrition at the start, but we had no clue about weight cutting. Yeah, okay. So the weight cutting, as I said, is like that the, our initial template for the weight cut was basically based off what uh, guys had learned and stuff, but Cottle Pendred probably uh, was the first of the team that I was involved with that kind of put a structure on it. And then... Uh, and then it was like him and Chris Fails used to have probably the biggest weight cut weight wise. Um, Do you recall how much? Like so, a weight cut, right? So a weight cut is basically what you lose the week of a fight. It's not the entire camp. Like some people will say, "Oh, he lost fifty pounds." If he's losing fifty pounds in a in a camp, it's because he was fat, right? Yeah. So it's I only shouldn't have a fat athlete. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for the weight cut, the weight cut is basically, if you're weighing in on a Friday, your weight cut pretty much starts on the Saturday to the Monday, depending, right? So that's how much you're cutting, right? Beyond that, it's fat loss, right? Longer periods, it's fat loss. So they would have been, Chris and Cottle would have been doing like anywhere from seven to 10 kilos in that time frame. So you said beyond that is fat loss. So in that week, what are they cutting? So the week of the fight, what you're trying now, there will be, <coughs> you're still losing maybe, I don't know, a quarter kilo to a half kilo of fat, right? Yeah. That's about what you can lose, right? Now, there could be a little bit of variation, but it's not two, three kilos of fat, right? So it might be like, say, low end, low ball could be like quarter kilo, high end maybe a kilo. That'd be like really extreme for that week, right? So... Then what you're also dropping out is the major, the two major things you're, you're, you're manipulating are your glycogen stores and your hydration, so your fluid in the body, right? So this is where you get most of that from, right? Now, there can be little things like if you take creatine consistently, that could be a half kilo to a kilo that week. If you eat a high-fiber diet, 
um, that could be anywhere from a half a kilo to a kilo in that week as well with, with, when you do like a low residue diet for that week so you know between those different factors if you take in like and when guys are doing like the, the, the kind of upper levels of a weight cut which is about anywhere from like 8 to 12 percent so if an athlete is weighing in at 70 kilos on the Friday he could be starting that previous Saturday at anywhere from like say 76 to 80 kilos okay now another factor of that is is people's ability to sweat. Okay, so you have anywhere from two to four million uh, sweat glands. Okay, and that is it, that is a set thing that is basically built into your system by age two, and your upper level of sweat glands depends on the the heat of the environment you grew up in. So. Yeah. If you're from Ireland, <laughs> good luck trying to cut. Yeah, so it's harder to cut weight because now, unless <clears throat> I don't know, you were on holidays or your parents didn't let you outside, you stayed inside the whole time, you were just warm, you can build more sweat glands, right? Now, you can hypertrophy sweat glands to sweat more, but the absolute number you have is a fixed number from about age two. So, uh, and this is one thing we're looking at in the PhD is that you definitely see regional differences for where people are from. So Cahill, even though he's Irish, he was born in the States, he was born in Boston. So Boston has hot summers. He, he tends to, and you see it like with people when you expose them to heat, they sweat faster. So people who can sweat faster can, and sweat more, it's gonna be much easier for them to cut weight. Artem was the same, uh, dealing with a guy now uh, Hugo from Brazil and again he, he couldn't wait for him is a lot easier because he's just able to sweat and that's what it comes down to is like the biggest variable you have in that weight cut is how much of your uh, fluid stores can you empty out in a very short period of time so um, and then as I said then the second biggest thing you're going to lose is your glycogen stores and then that could be now the glycogen pure glycogen uh, can be up to a half a kilo in the body, but you've for every gram of uh, glycogen, you've three grams of water. So that could be up to two kilos. Now, their averages, if you're better at storing glycogen, um, that could be three kilos total. So when you start adding all these things together, you start getting up to your like anywhere from six to 10 kilos, depending on the size of yeah. the person. And every little bit counts. Now. What you're trying to do is you're trying to get easy wins within that week. So the low fiber thing is not going to impact you. So that's easy. Depleting what, glycogen. What do you mean it's not going to impact you? <coughs> As in you don't Energy? feel bad. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you don't feel bad. Like, But getting extreme dehydration is death. Like yeah. So you have to make sure that, um, that you're trying to get these easy wins. And so that when you start losing the water, you only need to lose enough. And they've been to make a lot of weight. shit coming up to this weight cut. Yeah, as well. exactly. Like you fight camp, you've the stress of that. Now, the, the thing about it is, is like a lot of people focus on the, the, the week that, that week. But like, as I was saying, is like, so if the, the way in is the Friday, the previous Saturday, you want to hit that previous Saturday, fully hydrated, fully carved up. If you end up into that uh, period, uh, and you've already been on a very low carb diet. Well, you week. don't have that two to three kilos of glycogen plus the water to lose. So um, you want to make sure. So this is where leading up to it, you want to get them as lean as possible. So with fighters, now again, this is done off caliber pinch with different software, right? So um, you, but you want to get them as lean as possible. So on a DEXA 
<coughs> like we've had people six, six, seven percent on a DEXA, uh, and uh, and that's just the guys we've been able to test. I'm sure there's like probably the leanest guy I've ever had fight was Carl Frampton. Like he was just shredded, you know. So it's like um, the leaner they are, the better, because like it's it's non-contractile uh, tissue. Um, it doesn't do anything. So like you know, it, you know for 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 these guys. Um, so it's it's like if, if people are missing weight a lot of times it's it's not that they've messed up the weight cut it's that they were fat. too fat to start with okay um, so that's why it's important with them as well as that you get them lean quickly so that you can bump everything back up like so when I bump, bump up calories bump up carbs and then train their asses off because yeah. like too much of the time is mistakes and I've made them I, the reason I know them is because I've made them is that trainers and nutritionists trainers focus too much on strength training for yeah. their athletes nutritionists focus too much on body fat levels um, so there is a trade off because with a fighter it's how do they do when they're fighting yeah. that's all that matters whether they're you know they can bench press the world whether they've got the best abs ever you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? The, you know, you get them as lean as as you can, um, and it is that trade-off with performance throughout the camp. So it's like that's why you don't want to be like do it like a Ricky Hatton type, where you get fat and you spend your entire camp trying to lose weight yeah. rather than training for the fight. Okay, so get lean once and stay lean. Yeah. Okay. Now, will they be as lean out of camp as they are in camp? No, but you don't want to be. If if you've got like anywhere from say, and with MMA it can vary, but like if it's anywhere from four to ten weeks, you don't want to be spending the majority of that trying to lose weight. Like you want to be spending, like if it's ten, twelve weeks, two, three weeks, get them to optimal body fat level, everything comes back up, and then you train them, and so they can train really hard, so that when you get to that Saturday before Friday weigh in, that you have stuff to cut you don't want to be heading into that depleted if if they're depleted on that day the wake up is so is so much harder so okay so um <clears throat> just two last questions um can you kind of explain to the listeners as well how you would approach because you, you talked about manipulating water but how exactly you would do that from you know a hydration <clears throat> to a dehydration period and also uh, what on average or what what is the most you've seen uh weight shift in five to six days with manipulating water because I'm, I, some listeners might be familiar with um, how you manipulate water some might not be okay so what you're trying to do is you so from a hormonal point of view like you've you know you've 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 like your sodium you've your aldosterone you've all these different things you know that you're trying to manipulate so the the the, the, the take home is that is that you're trying to be dehydrated for as small as window as possible. The longer that window is, the worse it is for your health. And the harder it is to rehydrate, would, I, would you um, say? I, 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 I haven't read, it's bad anyway. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, it's definitely bad. I don't know whether you'll rehydrate as well, but the, the, the key is, is that <clears throat> you wanna spend as little time stressed out as possible on the body. Now, the reason I say that the weight cut will start on the Saturday, depends on how much they have to cook, but like, <clears throat> Most of the time what you'll do is if you have a weight cut on a Friday, what you will do is you will have basically a 24 hour period, if we're working backwards, before weighing where there's no fluids, okay? So if you're weighing in on the Friday, you'll have a 24 hour period before your weighing. So if your weighing is 
10 a.m. It's from 10 a.m. on the Thursday morning. No fluids, no right? Now, that day, so the Thursday, you give them 15 milliliters per kg, right? That's how much fluids they have, right? So for most people, that could be anywhere from three quarters of a liter to a liter and a half, depending on their weight, okay? Then <clears throat> the day before that, so the Wednesday, is um, you will go, with, so I would like to do a water load. So you do um, a three-day water load, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And what you're doing is you're doing uh, 100 mils per kg, okay? So if the person is 80 kg, they're drinking eight liters of water, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they drop it down to 15 milliliters per kg on the Thursday, and they have a 24 hour period of where there's no fluids. So this is water loading. So if so, they drop it down on the Thursday, <clears throat> and if they're weighing maybe a Friday at 10 o'clock, are, are they drinking it Thursday till about seven? No, 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 it's 24 hours. So whenever the 24 hour period is, so if they wake up at 9 a.m., the way in is they drink their liter, liter and a half it, in yeah. that hour, okay. and that's it for the day. Now, most weigh-ins are later, okay? Um, and basically what you're doing is, is it, it is tricking the body. So um, there's uh, research by Reed Reel uh, to show that when you water load versus just a normal water intake and drop it, the water load, you end up losing more fluid, okay? Now... <clears throat> On the scales, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a, it could be anywhere, again, from a half a kilo to a kilo extra the person loses, which most people, what do they miss weight by? A pound, two pounds. So that's the difference between fighting and not fighting. That's, that's the difference between it. it could be a title fight or a non-title fight, or yeah. getting a fine or not getting a fine, or the, the guy saying, I'm not fighting you, you're too heavy. So, or having to kill yourself in a sauna to, to make weight, right? So, as I said, these are easy gains. Like, there's no uh, negative effect from this, and it's just benefit, right? Um, now, it's, you're going to the toilet the whole time, especially guys if they're traveling to and from, like, to the fight. You know, you're on planes, you're just, you know, you're weighing all the time. Not the most comfortable experience. Exactly, right? So, um, that is, uh, that's your water load aspect of it. And as I said, you only want to be in a no fluid restriction for about 24 hours, okay? Anything longer, you're actually going to cause water retention. So if you're trying to sweat water, uh, trying to sweat to get extra fluid out of you and you're dehydrated for maybe a 36-hour period, it's going to be harder to sweat, okay? And what you're trying to do, it's very stressful to get the body to do that initial, initial kind of heat it up and get it sweating. So you want to, you don't want to be doing like three or four training sessions. You might do two, right? So you might do the night before and the morning off, and that's it, right? So you're not like doing, you know, you might train all week and do sweat sessions every day just to, to build the body up, but um, you're not doing them in a dehydrated state. Like you're doing the other ones because um, <clears throat> there definitely is an adaption phase. So there's other work by um, Oliver Barley that shows if you expose yourself to kind of heat acclimatization, then uh, it takes less um, stimulus or less heat to get you sweating to an appropriate level. So you start sweating at a lower temperature, so that's easier on the body, 
okay so there's definitely an adaption phase to that so there's different things we can do to like from a two-week period building up into it so that when we actually do want them to kind of like sweat to make weight that it's less stressful on the body and again all of this is about all these little tiny gains can make a big difference to not having a, a drained athlete come fight night because that's what it's about it's not it's not about making weight it's about making weight rebounding and being able to perform and being able to perform so that you, you don't gain anything from a weight cut but you can definitely lose from a weight cut so if you're you want your athlete a hundred percent if you have a bad weight cut, he might go in there at 85%. If you do it correctly, he'll, he can go in there at 100%. So that's what you're trying to do is all these little things is the only, if you do it wrong, he's going to go in less. So you're trying to get him in at 100%, okay? Um, so then you might do a sweat session on the Thursday evening and then it, maybe again on the Friday. And that depends on the athlete. So the, there's a little bit of like trying to figure stuff out with them. I know some guys who... <clears throat> Are like I don't want to do anything on Thursday night. I'm going to do it all Friday morning. And other guys who are like, and and this more is the psychology of it. It's more like no, I'll do most of it on Thursday night. Sleep poorly into Friday, but I I know I'm going to make weight. So there there is that kind of trade off. Even though I think even though I think it's better to try and limit that window as much as possible, if the fighter feels better, doing a kind of a worse way. The psychological benefits probably outweigh do it how they want to do it. Yeah, because if you're stressed, like increasing cortisol can uh, um, increase aldosterone, which increases water, water retention. retention. So it's kind of like, well, if they're going to, even if I'm telling them this is a better way, if they're stressing, it could, you know, uh, outdo everything I've, I've told them to do. So if they're relaxed, that's the most important thing. And again, the mode of, uh, of getting them sweating is whatever suits them. Okay, so the, the key is is if they feel comfortable. Now, I prefer less impact, but if they feel more comfortable, I like going for a run to sweat, throwing a sweatsuit or go for a run. Even though that's probably a worse way of doing it than being on a bike, you know, um, or more passive ways like sauna or salt baths, then... Uh, it's kind of like, as I said, is like the, the stress of the athlete is kind of your number one concern. And as you work more with them, uh, you can kind of figure out the ideal way for them. And as they begin to trust you more, they'll listen to you more and then you can influence it better that way. Gotcha. Okay. So just kind of uh, on closing, uh, can you give the listeners a bit of kind of uh, information about kind of your research right now and some of your findings and uh, some of the stuff that's coming up in the future? Um, so the, the big thing where I've uh, had uh, two studies published, uh, one of them is on a salt bath and then I'm literally, I don't know when this comes out, but hopefully by the time this comes out, the second study on the salt bath will be released. So basically what we look at is fighters add salt to hot water baths as a means of sweating more, as a means of losing more weight on the scales, right? And uh, both our studies have shown that the level of salt we've used, which is two kilos of salt, um, has made no difference to the weight loss uh, in a hot bath. Now, the, the hot bath is effective for losing weight. Um, so now our next study that we're doing, hopefully we'll get this started in September, is the two kilos equates to about 1.6% solution in the bath of salt. So our the, the study we're looking at in uh, September is going to be a 5% solution 
of salt. So we think that there has to be, if, if it's below a certain level, it won't affect it. So basically, the, the premise of it is, is that <clears throat> the sweat gland fatigues, so you stop sweating, and the salt helps, uh, what would you say, uh, minimize the fatigue so that you can sweat for longer in the bath. So the whole thing is that you do 20 minutes in the bath, 40 minutes in a wrap, and you do that twice. So, um, like we've had guys, like from the protocol, we've had them follow, which is basically like, the, uh, we haven't done the water load, we've basically just done the dehydration protocol for 24 hours. So they wake up on the, just say the morning, uh, have the 15 meals per kg, restrict fluids for 24 hours, do 20 minutes in the bath, 40 minutes wrap twice, and they're losing like four to five percent of their body mass. And did you find that the individuals <clears throat> in the study um, had more, let's say, tolerability to, let's say, just water or the, the salts and the water? There's definitely. Was more, more there's de yeah, there's definitely. The, the water is definitely having an effect because uh, we've done exit questionnaires and we've blinded them to the uh, treatment what's going on so basically they'll wait outside they'll come in just get in the bath so they don't know whether it's salt or so it's called a salt water bath or fresh water bath so uh, what we found is the feedback we've got <coughs> is that there definitely is a higher uh, tolerance level in the salt water bath so it's not That's as stressful okay yeah so that, even that could be a reason for using it like as far as um hydration levels that we've tested or losing weight on the scales there's no difference so from that point of view salt isn't worth it but from a kind of uh, what would you say an rpe scale it's definitely beneficial from what we've seen um, but now <clears throat> what we're going to do for the next study is we're really ramping things up we're bringing in performance tests we're increasing the solution of of the salt and we're doing a lot of blood work as well so we're trying to see uh, if there's like does it affect maybe creatinine levels does it affect you know it does it affect aldosterone does it affect these different hormones um, cortisol kidneys exactly yeah so we're, we're trying to see does it have an effect on that <clears throat> we, and it's it's a crossover design so that it, we're trying to ho we're hopefully getting 13 guys and they're going to do both uh, exposures while doing all the, uh, the the testing the performance tests because you might find that there could be no difference there could be a difference so that's what we we're, we're trying to find out like I and this is what's interesting is like I would have said they lost more with the salt I at the start I would have said just based on everything you know about just on salt. like but again more anecdotal and I was like oh yeah yeah definitely and it, it, it again was a placebo or whatever but so it was interesting to see now that on both studies it's like, oh, no, there was actually no effect on the scale. Now, as I said, is, is it beneficial that, the, you know, it, it feels less stressful? Of course. You know, and it's a very, like if people haven't cut weight, it's a very, very stressful situation. So like anything to make it easier is probably worth doing. Yeah. Perfect. So, John, I appreciate all your time mm. and the... I really enjoyed that. I really learned a lot myself. But uh, if anyone's looking to kind of find out more about you, you're kind of off the grid. You don't really have social media or stuff like that, do you? Yeah, well, three young kids and a PhD. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to have. So um, 
I don't know, follow the ISI one. <laughs> yeah, the, the ISI Health Instagram, I know on the Irish Strength Institute uh, website, I think you have a presentation up there as well from one of the ISI symposiums I'll do it. All right, as well. Great. I think you do there, John, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so um, thank you so much for having um, for coming on, and um, I appreciate it. No problems. Thank you all so much for sticking around to the end of the podcast. If you did enjoy today's episode, I would really, really appreciate if you could share it on any of your social media platforms. And on that note, I will see everyone on the next episode.